This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. If you're ready to study God's Word together today as a faith family, turn to James chapter 5. And if you know your Bibles a little bit, you know that James chapter 5 is the last chapter in James, which means that in our semester study of the book of James, uh, if our experience has been a flight, we are now entered into our initial descent. Um, Today will be our penultimate study in the book of James, meaning we just have one more to go, which will be next week. And if you remember last week as we left off, here's where we left the hearers of James's letter. If you remember, we, last week we talked about the rich and the powerful and how they were oppressing many of these first century followers of Jesus Christ. And James had some really harsh words for those who would use their power and their wealth to abuse people, to oppress people, or to use them for their own financial gain. But then we also saw the converse of that, of how we as Christians should believe instead of what they are believing. Today what we're going to do is we're going to flip the script a little bit. And so if last week was an indictment against the rich, the oppressive, and the powerful, this week is going to be a paragraph focusing in on those who are being oppressed, those who are suffering, those who are struggling. And all of us in this room, in some shape, form, or fashion, we can attest to the fact and give testimony to the fact that there is real oppression on this earth, that there are real injustices on this earth, that there is real struggle, that there, is real, that there really is real persecution throughout this life that we're going to experience in different level, in different forms. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is a yet another characteristic of real authentic faith, because that's what the book of James is all about. It's about separating false faith from real faith. And what we're going to see today is that real faith, real faith that changes our life, real faith that saves our soul, is the faith that perseveres through struggle, that perseveres through doubt, that perseveres through oppression, and perseveres all the way to the end. We see this even in the book of Matthew. I'm actually going to start there today. And so in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, it's one of Jesus' first parables. And in Matthew 13, Jesus gives the parable of the sower. And he talks about different responses to the gospel, different responses to God's word. And he gives multiple examples, but I want to focus in on one in particular. In verse 5 in chapter 13, he says this, Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Now, if you go down a few paragraphs, in verse 20 He's going to explain what he means by this. He says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. 
Here's what Jesus is saying to us. Jesus is saying that it is very possible for a person to hear the gospel of Jesus, to hear the word of God preached, and agree with it in principle, and even give intellectual assent to it and say, yeah, I agree with that. And that person could then come to be a part of a fellowship of believers and be very committed for a period of time. Perhaps it's a few months. Maybe it's a couple of years. Perhaps longer. But then what happens is that persecutions arise. Tribulations come. Old friends start calling again. Former sins that they were consumed with start rearing their ugly head again. And because of the persecution and because of the struggle, Jesus says they fall away. And the reason they fall away is that that faith that they had was simply an intellectual faith. It was a surface level faith. It was simply an assent that they had given to some truths, but there was no root in them to cause them to endure all the way to the end. And this separates true faith from false faith. And the, de- the common denominator for those of us who have true faith is that our faith is not of ourselves. Our faith is from God. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the one who chases after us long before we ever chased after Him. And that Ephesians 2 tells us that it is God who actually gives us the gift of faith. And Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this, that He is confident in this truth, that He, God, who began a good work in you, will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. And so see, this is the difference between saving faith and false faith. You see, false faith is just something that I agree to in my own mind. It's predicated upon me and what I'm believing and what I'm doing. But Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and now in the book of James, James is going to tell us that true saving faith is ultimately of God. And since it's ultimately of God, what He begins in your heart... He will sustain through your life and he will complete it at the very end. And so here's the central truth that we're going to learn today is that saving faith is persevering faith. Saving faith is persevering faith. It is the grand distinguishing mark of true believers in contrast to false believers is that God will sustain you all the way to the end, through every mountaintop, every valley, and everything in between. And so in today's text, as he's talking to a group of Christians, these new Christians in the first century, who were experiencing real hardship, real persecution, and real oppression, and that oppression and persecution was because of their faith in Jesus Christ and their lowly estate. This writer James is going to tell us that all of that persecution and all of that suffering, it's not for naught. And God will sustain you through it. And there is hope at the end of the tunnel. And I just wonder, is there there a person or two? Is there a group of people? Are there those of us in the room who just need to hear that today? So in James chapter 5, verse 7, he says this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, 
until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brother, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is a very practical paragraph. And as a preacher, we love paragraphs like this because there are a lot of imperatival verbs in here. And it really helps us to understand what does the text want us to do. And so in today's text, we're just going to see very clearly some of these commands just very explicitly written for us. And what we'll do is we'll make them applicable to us today some 2,000 years later. And in doing so, what I hope that you will see is that whether you are a Christ follower in the first century or the 21st century, our circumstances may be a little bit different, but the human condition is not, and the human heart is also the same. And the solution to our hurting hearts is also the same. So since saving faith is persevering faith, so in the midst of the struggle, what do we do? Well, number one, he tells us to be patient. He says, be patient. And he doesn't say it just once, actually. I mean, as you just make your way through this short paragraph, in verse 7, he says it two times. In verse 8, he says it another time. In verse 10, he says it another time. And then in verse 11, he uses the word being steadfast or endure two more times. And so he's passionate about this truth for us is that we are to be patient, enduring what goes on on planet Earth. And this is actually a radical truth for us who have grown up in the West. Like a lot of times, we look at adversity. We look at struggles. We look at suffering. Or we look at persecution. And because we live in a relatively safe environment... And we live in stark abundance, juxtaposed against many in the world. When we come across suffering or adversity, it's almost like we're thinking, well, this is strange. This is weird. Like, why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening to me. Why me? What's wrong with me? Where did I go wrong that I'm suffering with this or feeling this? You've been there? And so that's our, that's our default position as human beings. But in telling us to be patient, and telling these first century followers to endure this, what he is saying is he is saying, don't be surprised by this. Like this isn't the abnormality of the Christian life. This is the normality of the Christian life. It's hard. 
you're going to experience hardships. You're going to experience oppression. You're going to experience tough words being said against you. You may even experience physical harm because of your faith in Christ. And Jesus himself said just on a grander scale that simply being a human being on planet earth, you're going to have its share your share of suffering on any given day. It is life on earth, the Bible tells us. It's one of the things I love about the scriptures. The scriptures do not soft soap things. And the Bible doesn't give us this Pollyannish view of what life on earth is, as if everything is always butterflies and rainbows and roses. Instead, what the Bible assumes is that in a sinful, broken world, there's going to be hurt and there's going to be suffering, and especially for you believers, you're going to experience even some unique persecutions and suffering because of your faith. And so don't be surprised by it. You have to patiently endure it. It's actually a part of God's design for you as a disciple. Now, if you're anything like me, I don't necessarily like that. I mean, I'm not sure if you expected to come into church today and expect the pastor with the seminary degree, to say that there's some truth that I don't necessarily like. I'm a human being. I don't necessarily like the idea that a part of being a disciple includes suffering and adversity. But it's the way God has written it into the DNA of His believers. And so we have to believe that so that we're not caught by surprise by it when it happens. Now, why are we patient? He doesn't just say be patient like we tell a child who's in the waiting room, right? I, I was at the barber shop the other day and there was a little three-year-old in the room and his mother kept telling him to sit over in the corner at the little children's table they had laid out and just play nicely. And we're, we're, it's only going to be a couple more minutes, honey. It's only going to be a couple more minutes. That wasn't sufficient for him because every five seconds it was like, is it now, right? Is it now? And that and sometimes as parents, you just have to say, just sit over there because I told you so and just wait and be patient. But that's not the biblical idea of what patience means here. It's not the biblical idea of what waiting means. I mean, first, look at why he says wait. Look at why he says be patient. He says be patient until the coming of the Lord. In verse 8, it says, you also be patient for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Very simply put, he's saying there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is light at the end of the tunnel. It's hard, yes. It hurts, yes. But it will only be temporary. Even if it lasts your entire life, what is your life? Remember, it's a mist. It's a vapor. We saw this in James 4. Even if the suffering and the hardship lasts your entire life, it's only for a moment. It won't last for eternity. Redemption is near. The Lord is at hand. This won't last forever. So be patient. Now, what does this patience look like? Because we can say, well, am I supposed to just sit and twiddle my thumbs and just take it, right? Like, just clench the fist, tighten up the abs, and just say, punch me, right? I'm just going to take it. It's not the picture. It's a very different kind of waiting. And he gives three illustrations here. So number one, he tells us to wait for the harvest like a farmer. 
wait for the harvest like a farmer. It's what he says in verse 7. He says, see, the, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. I love this picture. And so in this agrarian society, it wasn't like farming was like one vocation among many others. I mean, that's what we see today in our culture. No, no, most people were farmers in this very agrarian society. And so people were used to the weather patterns. They were used to the rain patterns. They knew the calendar. They knew when they were supposed to do X, when they were supposed to do Y, and when they were supposed to reap the harvest. And so what James does here is he appeals to the faithfulness of God by sending the rains both in the early season and the late season, which is a part of their harvesting their crop. Now, what's beautiful here is James is not just peeling off a pie-in-the-sky illustration because so many of these people worked in this way. He's actually hearkening back to an Old Testament promise of God. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 11, and remember, this is a primarily Jewish Christian audience he's writing to. In Deuteronomy 11, verse 13, God said, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And here's the promise of God in this, is that God promised to both provide the rain, provide the sustenance so that their crops would be successful and they would have physical nurture, physical sustenance on this earth. But God is also making a spiritual promise to his people that if they would obey, if they would follow, if they would be faithful, that he would bring a spiritual harvest to them. And this is what James is invoking. He's invoking this Old Testament promise for these New Testament believers. And the reality is the same for you and for me today. We may not see it. We may not see the faithful hand of God today. But God is faithful. I was telling someone the other day that one of the things I love so much is the changing of the seasons. Because although we groan and complain because it's not quite yet spring, even though the calendar says it's spring, I mean, just look at the calendar, right? Comes at the same time every year. The moons do their thing the same time every month. It it snows when it's supposed to snow, generally speaking. It's warm when it's supposed to be warm. And it's been that way for millennia. That's the faithfulness of God. And that's what James is appealing to. Now, waiting like a farmer. Does a farmer, does a farmer just go out and throw some seeds in the ground and they go sit on the front porch in a rocking chair with a lemonade and just say, let's watch the crops grow? No, what a farmer does is a farmer cultivates the ground, the farmer plants the seed, the farmer waters the soil, the farmer pulls weeds, the farmer is constantly tending to his crop, tending to his field, while he waits, knowing that the harvest is going to come. The farmer knows that he can work hard. The farmer knows that he can tend to his field, but the farmer knows also he cannot make the crop grow. This is such a great picture that James is giving us here. 
What he's ultimately telling us is while we're waiting, while we're enduring these trials on planet Earth, don't worry about what you can't control. Focus on what you can. Don't worry about what you can't control. The farmer can't make the crop grow any more than you can just make all of your problems go away. Any more than you can make people treat you differently. Any more than you can make the return of the Lord come faster than he has done. You can't control any of that. But what you can control is you can control your faithfulness. You can control your spiritual disciplines. You can control being attached to your body of believers who is going to encourage you and push you through this process on planet Earth. You can control how you respond. You can control your heart. You can control your actions. So don't worry about what you can't control, James tells us. Focus on what you can. So wait for the harvest like a farmer, he tells us. And he tells us, speak God's word like a prophet. Speak God's word like a prophet. Look at verse 10. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. I love this. This is a great reminder to the first century world, and it's a good reminder for you and me today. He's basically saying this. You guys are not the first people to ever experience this. You're not. And not uh, like, it, like this isn't weird. Like this has been the pattern. Like, and this wasn't just like for la- the last five years or the last 10 years. Like even looking hundreds and hundreds of years back, even to the prophets of old, they experienced this type of life on earth. You're not the first ones, he says. Think about Jeremiah, for example. Jeremiah in theological circles is known as the weeping prophet. Think about his life. He had a really miserable ministry experience. This is like really good for me to remember. Like even when things are really hard as a pastor and a missionary, like think about Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was tasked to foretell God's impending judgment upon his people, and it was going to be at the hands of the Babylonians who would take them into captivity for a long period of time. Now, Jeremiah's job was to go and warn God's people that this was going to happen. And think about what happened in response. He suffered enormously because of it, because the people didn't like his message. His own family betrayed him. He was beaten and put into stocks by a temple official. He was imprisoned by the king, threatened with death, and then thrown into a cistern. But through all of this, Jeremiah was faithful. Through all of this, he did what the Lord commanded him. Jeremiah kept the faith, and Jeremiah spoke the word of the Lord even in the midst of severe opposition. Now, don't you know that that was very, very important for these first century Jewish Christians to hear? That that they're being so oppressed because of the name of Jesus, so oppressed because of the cause of the gospel, so oppressed because of the wealthy just using them for their own gain. And then to remember the prophets of old 
And Jeremiah being one of the towering examples, you know that a faithful Jew would have remembered Jeremiah. You know that they would have remembered the things that he endured. And though he doesn't name his name, there's an implication that guys like Jeremiah would be included. You're not the first one. You're not the only ones. And look at the towering giants of old. Even they experienced this, and some of them even in greater measure than you. We need that perspective, don't we? We need that perspective and we need that reminder. So speak the word of the Lord. Be faithful to that, even in the midst of opposition, James tells us. And then lastly, he gives us a third example here. Hope in God's purpose like Job. He says in verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. He's obviously calling on his brother Jesus again because Jesus said the exact same thing in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Most of us in the room remember Job. Even if you've taken the Bible's literature class and you're not a believer, you've probably heard some of the story of Job before. Job, a very faithful, devout man, and and he is inflicted, he is afflicted by just about every type of affliction you can experience. He loses his family, he loses his possessions, he loses his health. And in the process, he grapples with it for chapter after chapter after chapter in the Old Testament book of Job. He gets some really bad advice from friends. Like, that happens for us sometimes too, you know? Like, what happens when we're really going through the ringer? We go and we vent to other people. And a lot of times, we're going to those other people not because we want answers, but we want to be affirmed in whatever feelings we're feeling, right? That's the human nature. So he goes to some friends, and his friends give him some really bad advice, really bad counsel. And that's the worst thing that we could get when we're in really low places. And God ultimately rebukes his friends for this. But Job, through this all, in the midst of his loss, in the midst of his confusion, and in the midst of his bad counsel, the Bible tells us the faithfulness of Job. So for example, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take basically two minutes And I'm going to give you high points of how Job did this. Job 121, he says this in response. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's chapter 1. Then chapter 2, well, his wife doesn't necessarily help him too much. Job 2, verse 9, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Well, that's edifying. I mean, that's not real helpful in the moment. But look at his response. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Fast forward many chapters to Job chapter 16, verse 19. He says, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. 
His hope is in God and His purposes. Job 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. I love this. Think about it. This is a guy who had a severe skin affliction in his health. And look what he says. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another my heart faints within me. And it takes us 41 chapters to get to the climax and to the resolution of this hard account of Job's life. And in Job chapter 42, verse 5, here is Job's testimony before God. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes for his unbelief and for his doubting. Verse 7 says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. My servant Job has. That is good stuff. That's good stuff from God's word. And that's the perspective that we need today. You see, when we are lost and hurt and confused and so many things by our suffering or our loss or things that we don't understand, we don't always think rightly in those moments. We're emotional. We're passionate. Our vision can be skewed. And what we need to be reminded of is that we're not the only ones that We're in the long list of God's faithful and there is a pattern of faithfulness that we can follow because so many before us have already followed it. Now, just so you know, I'm going to encourage you. I know we've taken a long time on this first point. It's purposely the majority of the sermon today. So we don't have a long, long way to go. But the first thing he tells us that in the midst of the struggle, since saving faith is persevering faith, Be patient. Be patient. Number two, he says, stand firm. He says, stand firm. Because here's what's going to be the temptation. Your temptation's going to be that when it gets really, really hard and really, really hurtful, especially being a Christian, you are going to be so tempted to waver. You're going to be so tempted to fall down. You're going to be so tempted to run away. That's the human nature inside of us. But instead, what he tells us in the second part of verse 8 is he says, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. Other translations say, stand firm. Now, I've never participated in sumo wrestling. I mean, can you get the picture of this? I mean... Pretty easy pickings, right? I've never participated in sumo wrestling. But what's really interesting about sumo wrestling is that the goal is not for those guys to obliterate one another. The goal is not for them to beat each other up. I mean, no one walks away from a sumo wrestling 
match needing stitches and, and, and to be able to fix their face back. That's not the purpose of sumo wrestling. The purpose of sumo wrestling, and this is why those guys get ready and they just plant their feet firm, right? The whole purpose is to push the other guy outside of the circle before he pushes you outside of the circle. And I just wonder if that's not a fairly good illustration of what James is getting at here. Is that there is so much stuff that is thrown at us on planet earth. Following Jesus. Just living on earth. That God wants us to be good spiritual sumo wrestlers. You plant your feet solid in the concrete of the gospel and my promises. And no matter what comes your way, you don't waver, you don't run away, and you don't let it push you out of the circle. You might fall down for a minute and your knee might catch you. You might at many times need other people to come around you and hold you up so that you don't fall down. But you plant your feet there and you don't let these circumstances push you out of the gospel circle that Jesus Christ died to graft you in. Stand firm. Stand firm is what James tells us. Next, don't grumble. Don't grumble. There's a little bit of a shift here, right? So in verses 7 and 8, and then you look at 10 and 11, it's all about suffering and endurance. But in the middle of those two bookends is this verse that says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged, because behold, the judge is standing at the door. If you just think about it for a moment, you'll understand why this is a significant challenge. In the midst of circumstances that are less than comfortable, think about it for just a moment outside of the Christian sphere. Think about your job. Or think about your family and your household. Think about your suite on campus. Think about the most meaningful relationships in your life. Now think about some deep-seated arguments that you have had with people in your life. People whom you love the most. Isn't that weird the way that happens? The people we love the most and the people we are closest to, we've probably had the most intense arguments or exchanged the most intense words with. Now if you have can't think of a really strong fight or argument that you've gotten into. Maybe you think about it. Maybe you've had some intense moments of fellowship, right? Maybe that just softens it for you a little bit. But I want you to think about those moments. Don't they so often come when things are bad? Don't they most often come when you're most stressed out? Don't they most often happen when you are most hurt in the depths of your heart. So what happens is, when we are hurt, or when we are stressed, or when we are scared, when we are doubting, or when we are fearful, our human nature is to turn against even those who are closest to us, who love us the most, and have our best interests at heart. 
That's human nature. We see this in church life all the time. We see it in a church life all the time. And that's what he's talking about. As Christian followers here, first century Jewish Christians, don't turn against each other. Don't grumble against each other. Like, don't look at your brother or sister and because they have an experience that's better than you, turn against them and make them out to be your enemy because their circumstances are different. Brother and sister, don't look at that, that other brother or that other sister who was asked to be in the position that you really longed for, but they were asked, you weren't. Don't build bitterness and resentment against them. Don't do that. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. Uh, don't, don't hear correction and then somehow think that that correction means that somehow someone's against you. That's not what that means. Here's the picture. For those brothers and sisters who fought in Vietnam, in the Vietnam conflict in the late 60s and early 70s, can you just picture for a moment being in a foxhole in the middle of a jungle with enemy fire just brushing past your helmet all throughout the day, and then your fellow Marine or your fellow Army Ranger next to you says something that you don't like or was asked to do something that you wanted them to do, and then all of a sudden you have the enemy fire standing right in front of you, and what you need is you need backup, and you need help, and you need encouragement, and you need support. But what you do is you turn your back on this guy because he did something you didn't like or didn't necessarily go in your favor, and now all of a sudden you're fighting alone. Like that'd be ludicrous. We're on the same team fighting a really bad army over here that wants to kill us. Here's the picture in the Christian life. There is a real enemy. And the Bible says that he is prowling around seeking whom he may devour. Jesus says that he wants nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy you and everything that Jesus has died to build up. So James looks at us and says, when you're being attacked and when you're going through this hardship and this suffering, resist the temptation of grumbling against each other and turning against each other because you're on the same team. You're on the same team and you need each other to withstand this enemy and his fire and his arrows. So resist that temptation. Believe the best about each other. Don't grumble against each other so that you can have a collective offense against this enemy. Do not grumble. And lastly, he says, keep your word. Keep your word. In verse 12, he says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Scholars and theologians have differences of opinion of exactly what's going on in verse 12 here because it really doesn't seem to fit with the thought process of 7 through 11. I don't know, you may think that too. 
But honestly, if you read that and you go back to chapter 3 and 4 when he was talking about the power of our words and, and, and how important that is when we're interacting with other people, it definitely fits in the context of the book. But whether it fits with this, these verses 7 through 11 or not, it's here. And so let's look at it. Here's the basic point. Keep your word. Do what you say you're going to do. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's so many ways that we can apply this. Sure, commitments that we make. If we make commitments, we should fulfill those commitments. If we tell somebody we're going to do something, then we should do what we said that we were going to do. Or at least amend for that as soon as we find out we didn't do it. If we tell something, we should make sure that we're accurately representing it. Don't misrepresent things. Don't tell stories that intentionally make other people look bad and make yourself look good. Don't exaggerate details. Keep your word. Be honest. This doesn't mean that we never take an oath because there are many oaths in life, right? I mean, politicians, when they're elected to office, they take an oath of office that they're going to fulfill their duties with honor and integrity. When we go to a court of law, we take an oath saying that the testimony I'm about to give is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There's nowhere in the scriptures that would ever forbid a human being from doing that, and especially Christians. But what James's point is here, to paraphrase another pastor, is this. It's not that we should never take an oath in a courtroom but, then, but when we're outside of a courtroom, we should never have to. Do you get the picture? We should never have to. Of all people, as Christians, as we make our way through this earth, our words should mean something. And James, again, is pulling from his brother Jesus because in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 37, Jesus said, let what you say be simple yes or no, Anything more than this comes from evil. Let me wrap all of this up with verse 12 and tie it into the rest of the paragraph and bring it to a conclusion and show you how this really all fits. It's very tempting when things don't go your way or when things don't go my way or you are hurting or I am hurting, especially if it's simply the oppression of someone else. And it's just simply injustice, right? It's very tempting when we're in those moments to be a people who want to fight back. I've been punched in the gut, so I'm going to punch in the face. Or they said this about me, so I'm going to say this about them. Our culture says, stick it to them. Because you've got yours coming. And you don't deserve that, and I don't blame you, right? That's what our culture says. But faith says something different. Isn't it interesting that in the midst of such oppressive persecution that these first century Christians were experiencing, James does not turn the page and say, go get your sword. He doesn't say, go get your shield. And he doesn't say, go get your AK-47, he doesn't say go get worked up and worked out so you can get buffed so that you can go get, take care of some business. 
Instead, what he says, he says, you be patient. You be patient and endure looking to the Lord and not to your circumstances and look past to the examples that you have to follow. He says, stand firm in the gospel and keep speaking it no matter what opposition you may get. He tells us not to turn against each other in the body of Christ, but to band together because we're on the same team. And he says, be honest. Keep your word. Don't do to others what they may be doing to you and lie about them or make them look bad just because they're lying about you or making you look bad. It's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. I didn't put this in the notes today, but here's how I want to close just turn the page in your Bible, just one page over to 1 Peter. We've already looked at this paragraph before, but based on what we've looked at today, this would be a fitting way for us to close. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, here's what Peter says. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Brothers and sisters, saving faith is persevering faith. And so if you're beaten and downtrodden, hurt, lonely, depressed, wherever you are today, Wherever you are, endure it. Endure it patiently with your eyes on Jesus because he's the ultimate example who was beaten and reviled and insulted and didn't do those things in return. And so we need to follow his example today. If you're here today and you've never responded to the gospel of Jesus and you don't have this hope that I'm talking about May I just say that we would love to tell you more about what that's like. We would love to tell you how to turn your life to Jesus. We would learn to explain to you what repentance and faith look like and how you can turn from your life of regret and pain and sin today and turn to a life of forgiveness and hope forevermore. And it won't remove all of your suffering. It won't take care of all of your problems today. But what James told us in today's paragraph is that there is a day when God is going to make all things right and he will heal all wounds and it is through his son Jesus that we get that experience. Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for instructing us. Father, we confess as a people these are hard truths We confess to you as a people, it's hard to walk on planet earth. It hurts. It's grievous at times. Sometimes it's because of other people, but sometimes it's because of ourselves. And so, Lord, we need you today. We need your grace to sustain us.
we need your grace to keep us fast all the way to the end because our hearts are so prone to wonder. And so, Father, today, would you establish our steps? Would you establish our hearts and make us stand firm all the way to the end, waiting patiently and working faithfully until we see you face to face? And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.